in one of his cantos in Savitri, Shurabindu reminds us, <clears throat> we must reread. We must discover the secret bond of bond in things. Reconstitute the lost divine idea. Reread the lonely consonants with the open vowels of infinity. Hundred years ago, Shubhendu started a journal called the Arya, and in the Arya, there was a question of the month which people would ask him. And the very first question was, what is the characteristic problem of the age, and what is the needed synthesis? And Shubhendu points out at the pinpoints at the melody. and he says the characteristic of the age is a divorce between man's own different faculties between reason and faith between the faculties of the head and the faculties of the heart the heart and the head are a single deity and he says that the needed synthesis is undoubtedly that of man himself it is often described today's age in which we live as an age of rapid information transfer and great connectivity there is all kinds of instruments of communication which flood our markets and fill our pockets the paradox is that it is also an age of great disconnectivity so while we are superficially connected to almost anyone anywhere in the world we are we have got increasingly disconnected with our own deepest self as if this was not enough we are disconnected with the world around us we are disconnected with deeper realities in this cosmos we are disconnected with whatever if at all exists beyond this cosmos and that is the source of all our troubles our maladies the deep malaise the suffering and pain we have to go through again and again time to time humanity experiences this disconnectedness and tries ways and means to recover it in fact uh, much of this effort at trying to improve communication is basically a recognition of this deeper malady only the means that we are devising are inadequate which we will discover as we go by but the vedas are one of the first earliest attempt of humanity to rediscover itself to locate itself in this cosmos and for that when we approach the vedas we often approach it as a book of reverence as a book you know which is a sacred scripture and as a book uh, which is written in difficult sanskrit and we approach it with a scholarly mind and therefore the vedas don't reveal their secret to us because we don't approach it as the quest of humanity and till we do that we cannot really accept them make it our own what really are the vedas who were these rishis what were they doing writing such abstruse scriptures 
they were very much like all of us they had the same issues the same problems only they were looking for lasting solutions because somewhere in that age man lived more and more by the intuition that is inbuilt in human beings and that intuition keeps on haunting us day and night that there is behind this world of phenomenal appearances a deeper reality whether we deny it whether we acknowledge it we cannot rest in peace till we have really gone far deep into its search what we find as a result of this search is a different matter they found it as the vedic rishis say they found it in different ways at different levels and therefore the vedas are a very fascinating book in the sense that they are not like though very much we like to believe or people you know make us believe that just as there is the bible as a sacred scripture in christianity or quran in in islam so hindus have the vedas but there is a fundamental difference the difference is as the vedas themselves declare that vedah anantoham it's an endless scripture so within it there is its own corrective this scripture cannot be subjected to any dogmatic belief assertion this is an endless discovery vedas are not a finished book in fact what we today have received as the vedas many of the verses are lost the second part the beauty of this scripture is it is not sacred because god spoke it but it is sacred because the soul heard it that's why they are called as shrutis it's not god spoke it well god speaks in so many ways but the soul heard it and because the soul heard it they can be renewed in our experience it's not just a question of believing or not believing they can be renewed because the original veda is not a book but it is something which is ashwabindo says written in the heart of every living creature that is the original veda it's written in matter itself if we go to veda literally the meaning its root meaning comes from with to know its knowledge which is not a knowledge not an informational knowledge not a book knowledge but it's a knowledge that is ingrained in the very stuff of things in the very nature of things and that knowledge unfolds itself in so many ways a thing as simple as two molecules of uh, two atoms of hydrogen and one of oxygen coming together forming water why does that happen because at its root there is a knowledge which fashions things into a certain way the seed of a certain plant grows into a certain tree is because there is behind it a consciousness the weaving of the stars as a necklace in the heavens is because there is veda at the root of this creation man's quest for immortality his search for god for meaning for purpose for perfection is because there is veda written in our hearts that is the beauty of the vedas but what really are they if you really look at an external uh, way of looking at it then we have these three main vedas and the fourth one and uh, i don't really wish to go into it because more of a 
scholarly way of looking at it and disconnects us actually from the Vedas. But the quest of the Vedic Rishis was essentially a quest for immortality. They looked at the world of impermanence, of changing appearances, and they wondered, is there behind this creation something which is durable, something which endures, something which lasts or outlasts the rub and change, the flux and flow of time, something which is eternal, something which is imperishable. And this quest began for them. The beginning of this quest was had to be within the individual. And this quest began with the lighting of something called the fire. Now the beauty of this Vedic period is that they wrote their sublime experience in a twofold way. Outwardly, the experiences could relate to the physical objects and physical symbols of everyday life. But inwardly, they connected it to deeper psychological experiences. So they remain always accessible to us. What really is this fire that the Vedic Rishis worshipped? It was evidently the fire of aspiration in man. And if we light up the same fire, we will go through the same experiences of the Vedic Rishis. For instance, they speak of the threefold fire and the fivefold fire. The first fire which lights up in the body. We can take just one small little story to see how you know beautifully um, through many of these symbols, the Vedic Rishis brought out deep psychological truths. There is, uh, you know, one of these stories of Ushasti Chakrayan. He is a very interesting uh, Rishi who, though he is a knower of the Vedas, but yet he is helpless before outer circumstances. We often believe that a man who has Vedic knowledge or who has risen to wisdom can just uh, veil power. This search for power came much later, but. Uh, so Shasti Chakrayan, there is a famine in the in his all around, and he is in search of uh, someone who can give him some food to eat. He is famished to death, and he asks, goes into a household and says, "Do you have something to eat?" And he says, "Something I have eaten, and something is left from my savings, and you can have it." So he has that. So then the person offers him water. So Shasti Chakrayan says, no, I don't need water. He says, but why? You, you asked for food and I have given you. Why can't you take water? He says, no, food was my necessity. I would have died without that. But water I can still hold on. So that is the kind of character. And Ushasti Chakrayan then goes back at his home. Next day, there is a yagna, to cut a long story short. And he goes to... Um, the, the, the king's uh, palace and there are different people who are performing a yagna and he asked them a question that tell me you who are going to start the yagna who is the deity whom you worship when you start the yagna so he says I don't really know I know the mantras but I don't know who is the real deity so he says well if you don't know the deity uh, it doesn't make sense you simply you know, recite mantras meaninglessly. Then he asked the second one, because there are three stages in which the rituals are performed. So first is that you start the process like an initiation. Then the process goes on. And at the end, there is, as we know, prashadam. The whole yagna is complete and prashad will be distributed. So he says, who is the second deity? 
the Udgita who is invoking. He says, I don't know really the sense of the deity. I just know that I have these mantras for so and so deity. But I don't really understand. So he asks the third one, when you complete the sacrifice, who is the deity? So all three are not able to answer and Ushasti Chakrayan is given the task of performing the yagna. So at the end of it, he is asked the same question. They tell us, pray tell us who is the deity. He says, when the, the initiating deity is Agni. So first thing is to invoke that Agni. Without that flame of aspiration, uh, we really cannot understand the Vedas because it is this which maketh a man. Truly, if there is something which marks humanity different from the animal creation, is this flame of aspiration which makes man at once the most dissatisfied creature upon earth. Because he is always seeking. Shodhundo describes it beautifully in Savitri, a long dim preparation is man's life. An endless circle of toil and war and hope dragged by life upon matter's obscure ground. Then he says, search for an ideal never made real here. This is what always with, with as human beings, we really become human beings when we begin to seek. And this seeking is the fire, which is the first deity. It's the initiation. Now we have so much halabalu about initiation. How did the Vedic Rishis initiate? It was not by anything external. It was by this fire of aspiration. And they had their way of testing humanity. There is a very interesting little story uh, of how they really knew whether a person is, was ready or not. So one of the stories about, it's probably a well-known story, story of Satyakam Chabali, where the little boy tells his mother, I want to learn Brahma Vidya. And he is the boy of a servant, maid servant. So she says, all right, go to the nearby Rishi. Rishi Gautama will teach you. So he goes and Rishi Gautama says, look, I don't admit anyone and everyone. So you must tell me, fill up this form, tell me who is your father, who is your mother, come back to me tomorrow. So he goes and asks his mother, mother, I know you, but I don't know my father. I've never seen him. So I have to fill up this form and enroll myself. And the lady tells him, Jabali, well, as for mother, you can be sure that I'm your mother. I don't know who your dad is because I have worked with many persons when you were conceived. Look at the strength of the story, the wideness of the vision. And this boy goes and says, I know who my mother is, but I don't know who my dad is. And immediately the guru says, well, you are fit to be enrolled for Brahmagyana because only somebody who has such courage, such honesty. The Vedic knowledge is not for hypocrisy or not for hypocrites. It's for those who are ready to lead an honest life, genuine life, not a life of show that one is very religious, one is very... It's a quest, inner quest. And he is admitted and he grows up and there is a very... You know how the Guru teaches him, that is also very interesting how the knowledge was imparted. So the Guru tells him, okay, you take 100 cows, lean and thin. When they grow into 400, 
good milking cows you come back now the child is keen on having brahmagyana and he accepts the guru's adesh and he goes into the forest now look at this uh, beauty of the story that very often our mind is right now conditioned that knowledge comes from books or from google baba or from you know some such thing it's to be acquired from outside but true knowledge doesn't come from outside it comes from inside now this man has a quest his quest will lead him with this fire he goes and as he tends the cows knowledge pours to him from every side it is described in very very beautiful ways the fire speaks to him the wind speaks to him and at the end of the day at the end of many years when he comes back he has the knowledge guru has not spoken anything he has given him a strange work and that is why when people come you know shobindo ashram pondicherry uh, when uh, i think vedalankarji had come there who was pandit of vedas uh, lived up to 108 years and when he saw the ashram he says oh here i find that truly the vedic life of which i have dreamed all my life that is being lived there now strangely in pondicherry ashram people are given different kinds of work it's not that okay from today onwards you will sit and meditate for so many hours satyakam is not given that task okay i am teaching you a method of meditation please meditate this way every day two and a half hours he is not taught that he says go and tend the cows now look how veda operates in every action there is the operation of that knowledge and to one who is awake it will pour in and that is how he grows into knowledge so the very first thing that the vedic rishis the first god whom they really invoked was agni and there are so many hymns rigvedas the first original vedas are full of hymns to agni it starts with a hymn to agni and it's full of many of these mandalas um, each mandala is by attributed to a certain rishi which will have suktas and riks and the full thing will be a samhita that's how the vedic lord proceeds and he will describe various ways you know at one place the vedic rishi will invoke agni to burn away the impurities to show him the right path to light up it's all in inner quest it was an age when there were no temples we can't imagine an age when the only temple that they wanted to create was a temple inside the the place where you know god seems to have hid himself from ashwagandha says from man's profaning touch because every outer temple has been corrupted from kanyakumari to badrinath even badrinath you will find just by the side of the main place you will find india's last tea shop and you will find coke tins and everything else and people walking without any quest the real thing is the quest he who goes with this quest is on the path of the vedas but what was the first necessity what was the next they they moved through they discovered that behind man's individual existence there are a host of cosmic powers so the second step after lighting the individual fire was to enlarge our being we are right now dealing with very very small things very small life as people say we are bogged down with the necessities of material existence which are truly never ending because every 8 hours we feel hungry again so it will be never ending 
That's why there's a very nice phrase, hunger, that is death. That's how the Upanishad describes it. Because we're hungry, we feed, and we again feel hungry. And therefore, material existence ties us. But there is another cycle of movement, of nature in which we can enter. A movement which is akin to the gods. And in the Vedas, we find this next step, this Agni, wants to bring down Indra, the luminous one. This is the second godhead whom they worship. And who is Indra? It is the first necessity to convert our normal outward going information processing or rather appearance processing rational mentality into an illumined mind. That's what Indra represents. He's the illumined mind. And there's a very interesting story about what is this illumined mind? What is, how does it operate? This is a story of Indra and Virochana. When the two of them, so I am fulfilling my promise of stories. So, <laughs> so uh, the story goes that uh, Indra and Virochana, they both go and uh, ask Brahma, tell us about the self. What is the true self? So Brahma says, see, the true self is in your eyes. So look into your eyes and you'll find the self. So now how do you look into our eyes? We can look into other parts. But how do we look into our eyes? Actually it is to look within. Eyes are the only organs through which we look. We can look at everything else. But how do we look at our eyes? So they look into a lake. The device is an ingenious way. They look into the lake and they see, ah, now we see our eyes. So they say, well, we know what is the self. But what kind of self is this? <laughs> so they say, okay, dress yourself in beautiful uh, adornments and now look. So they see and they say, ah, this is beautiful. This must be the self. It's a story, very interesting story. So both of them go away. Virochana is satisfied. He is an Asuraj. He goes and tells them the real self is the body. And therefore, look after this body. Take care of this body. Make sure that the body is happy and the bodily needs are satisfied and you will find the self because they know the self. But Indra says this body is subject to all kinds of deaths. It's subject to change, mutation. How can this be the true self? So while Indra and Virochana are away, Brahma is telling Narada, you know, they have left in a hurry. They are very impatient fellows. They should have waited. I have just taught them the very first step. So Indra comes back. Says, how can this be the true self? It is changing all the time. Okay, when I wear uh, a nice uh, adornments, it looks nice. But also, if I am lame, I look lame. If I am blind, I look blind. How can this be the true self? So Brahma says, ah, now you come. So first 32 years he has spent about this first part and the second part, higher secondary in spiritual education. So he says, okay, now uh, try to observe that self which is in dream, which is very different from your waking self, it always remains young, it can do things which your physical self cannot do. And after much learning, Indra masters the science of the dream self. And he goes back. Again he comes. His quest is not satisfied. He comes and says, no, but this too, I have discovered is subject to mutation, is bound by certain laws. But what is that self which is free and eternal? 
He says, well, it is the sleeping self, the self which you discover when everything else sleeps, when everything else is asleep. Still there is a self which comes back and there is a continuity of experience which is not lost. So he goes back and then he says finally that look, there is a fourth self in which all these three are unified, the waking dream and the sleep self and that is the real self. So it takes 101 years and eventually... Indra discovers the true self. So it's an illumined mind. What is the beauty of the illumined mind? Illumined mind by its nature is a seeker of knowledge. It grows into knowledge. It's open to knowledge. It's open to deeper truths. It does not mistake the apparent for the real or the surface for the deeper things. This difference can be you know, easily understood um, in this way that there are people who try to understand the deeper truths on the basis of the surface. It is a typical outer pragmatic mind. For instance, they will say, oh, God is everywhere. So um, how is he everywhere at the same time? He is inside me. Is he in my physical heart? This is a way of understanding the deeper by the surface. But illumined mind will understand it very differently. An example of this is when in another story, Brigu is asked, tell us, how is this all-pervading reality? Formless in a sense, yet everywhere. So he gives the example of salt dissolving in water. He says, look, uh, taste it from different points. He puts the water in different measures. What is the taste? Is salty. Taste salty, salty. Can you find salt in it? No. Can you see salt in it? No. But it is there because it dissolved. It has become the very essence of things. We have that famous song, Bulla Ke Jana Mein Kaun. It's, you know, who am I? So he discovers that, well, I am the very essence of all things. So this is how the illumined mind. So the first task of this Agni is to convert our outward going intellect, which is involved with surface things. All the time our mind is busy. In practical terms, what it would mean if we were to practice a Vedic Yoga. That once this Agni is kindled, it is not uh, enough that, you know, we sit for meditation for half an hour. This must become a living fire for us. Then the fire itself will speak and reveal. Our very mind should not be satisfied with surface appearances. Surface appearance may be very pleasant. They may be very frightening. They keep changing. But go deeper into it. What is there at the depth? What is there at the depth? What is behind this tree? Is there an abiding reality? It is Brahman. What is Brahman? What is behind this pillar? As Prahlad says, there is divine behind. And Hiranyakashup says, no, it is just a lump of matter. What is behind this human being? What is behind that beast, bird, stone? How beautifully Shivindu puts it in the blue of the sky, in the green of the forest. Whose is the hand that has painted the glow when the winds were asleep in the womb of the ether? Who was it roused them and bade them to blow? In the strength of a man, in the beauty of women, how behind everything one can feel that presence. So first task is this mind should be changed into an illumined mentality which is the task of Indra. And he makes sure, he will give all kinds of tests to ensure that are we really, really seeking that. And if we keep on seeking, then slowly the mind begins to change into a new mode of operation. The way we normally arrive at informational knowledge is not the way that we can arrive at, at the Vedic truths. 
That's why it is said that for the knowledge of God, we have to have another kind of operation of the mind. It's not possible through the analytical mind. Many things we cannot know through the analytical mind. A simple thing like everyday experience. You know, there is a very nice um, movie that had come. And in that, this is shown very nicely. I forget the name of the movie. I've just seen bits of it, that, but that part was very illustrative. It was like Veda coming through this movie. <laughs> so, husband and wife get married and then they have a baby. So, the husband says, okay, I'll look after, you know, you don't worry, you, you sleep, I'll take care of the baby. So, at night, the baby cries. So, husband has read the book. He has read everything about the baby. And so he gets up and he, you know, gets some milk and tries to feed. But the baby doesn't suckle at all. He's just not as if bothered. He doesn't know what to do. And then suddenly the mother gets up. He says, no, 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 you, you don't get it. Basically, the baby is feeling very warm. So she removes the blanket and the baby is quiet and sleeps. <laughs> so <laughs> the next day again, the baby gets up at night. So he remembers, oh, the baby must be feeling warm. So he removes the blanket, the baby cries even more. He says, no, 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 baby needs to feel more cozy. And she puts an additional blanket. The third day, the baby cries. And you know, one day it is uh, something else, one day it's something else. But the, the language is the same, the baby is crying. How does the mother know? It's not through a book, it's not through analysis, but by a kind of identification with the consciousness of the child, which is... Something which is inbuilt within us as a faculty and a capacity, which we hardly use it. We hardly develop it. What is called as, uh, it's the first way of intuition. In fact, we everyday experience it. How do we know we are hungry? We don't analyze the chemicals. We don't test our blood sugar and say, oh, blood sugar is low, I am hungry. We know we are hungry. How do we know we are angry? Even when nobody knows, we know we are angry. Because we identify with that. How do we know that we exist? Because we identify with something. Now this capacity can be extended and developed to any degree. And that is how the Vedic Rishis went about converting their mental operations into a new form of mentality. That's why Indra is also called the master of all the Indriyas. He has the... Uh, all these... Indriyas, the senses are projections of our mind to grasp reality. But if you go to the master, Indra is the master of all these, he can directly know the same thing without the use of Indriyas. So that's why Indra is also regarded as the inner mind. But this was not enough. They were not satisfied with this. So the quest went further. Look the adventure of these rishis. They were not satisfied just with gathering new ways of knowledge and playing with that. So they were in search of an absolute truth, something which is there behind the universe. And before they can go there, they have to become fit. So there were other gods, for instance, Ashwins, Ribhus. Ribhus in the Vedas are called artisans of immortality. And how do they make uh, help fashion immortality within us? Through the Ashwins who actually clear the nervous system of all obstructions. Because if we approach that truth, the closer we go, we run the risk of even losing our head. It's not a, it's a real ad adventure. There are stories in the Upanishad. One such stories is uh, of, you know, the samvad between Gargi and uh, Yagnwalk. There is a whole meeting and Gargi asks him, uh, 
on what is this based and what is that based and finally she goes to uh, okay she starts with you know um, what is that light by with which we all see see so yagnavalk says the sun okay when the sun is not there the moon when the moon is not there the fire when the fire is not there the self she says on what is this self woven so yagnaval questions her gargi one more question and your head will fall off it's the limits to which our human mind can take beyond it we have to be ready so these things prepare us these gods prepare us and then there are the four great guardians of the truth this is very beautifully described in the vedas that these guardians of truth will come and they will see whether we are ready or not and these they go in pair it's very interesting the first pair is varuna and mitra and the second is bhag and aryaman so varuna and mitra psychologically have very interesting functions and see how it attacks at every dogmatism varuna is the lord of vastness and his operations are described in a very short terse story and the story is of all of us sun shape is tied at the stake where he is tied with three cords and he is being offered a sacrifice just like us we don't even realize that we are being sacrificed by nature for something and we are tied at the stake of life we don't even realize it and he cries help me help me oh god help me and varuna comes to his rescue and as the story goes he cuts the upper string and throws it above he cuts the second string throws it on the sides he cuts the lower strings and throws it below what are these three cords upper cord is our mind which will not allow us to go beyond physical mind and this mind the strings are cut and this mind is allowed to enter into the higher domains the second is the life force which is moving in a very very small area and it cuts and universalizes makes the life force in us merge into a universal life which is all around and the third is the physical physicality the animality the string which holds us back and he cuts it and throws it down so varuna is the god of vastness he makes us vast look at the precondition for truth narrow mindedness cannot lead us to truth the first simple lesson bigotry cannot lead us to truth dogmatism cannot lead us to truth by its nature the quest of truth is only possible if the mind becomes vast to which the mother will add vast and supple because truth is not a fixed measure it is something which is constantly revealing itself in myriad ways so the mind has to become supple so varuna first comes and makes us our mind vast there are so many prayers the vedic rishis pray make us vast the vast the right the true that is how they have defined that reality satyam ritam vratam so where does the rit come in the problem of vastness is that even few ideas the mind finds difficulty in accommodating in the small box imagine when the mind is jostled with million ways of looking at life what would happen to it now there is a way that each of these truths is arranged according to the deeper law of things and rit is that power by which we intuitively know 
how each thing must find its true place in this cosmos. Now this Rit, the Lord who fashions this Rit is Mitra. That's why Mitra actually is also love. His, but the right translation is harmony. That's why even today when we talk about friends, the, the word used is Mitra. Who is, the, who is Mitra? Somebody with whom we have harmony. If there is no harmony, whatever may be outwardly called, it's not a Mitra. Mitra by nature is harmony. That's why the best relation that it can exist between human beings, including husband and wife, including man and woman, is the relation of friendship. Because as Mitra, life would be wonderful. As husband, wife, as father, son, as you know, child and mother, it tends to break down. But as friends, Mitra. So Mitra is the lord of harmony and he harmonizes not only relationships between human beings but relationships between man and the cosmos, between different powers of the cosmos. So Varuna and Mitra are the first ones. They are a pair. They both move together. In the ashram, the typical example was Nalnida and Amritha. Nalnida was known to have embodied the consciousness of Varuna within himself. And Amritha was, uh, you know, the two were almost... Uh, the, the rooms were side to side those who have gone to ashram know it and they would come out and go to the dining room together not only that would be always as if serious if somebody would look at him and uh, greet he would as if you know not even look or he would say hmm that's it with Amritha he would be looking all around bonjour good morning bye bye so friendly and uh, they were together. It's literally like the Vedic gods Varuna and Mitra. That they go together. And these two were the first, uh, first things that the Vedic rishis wanted to acquire. And they labored at it. It was not easy. It's not easy for a consciousness which is bound to habits. That's why when mother was asked um, how to prepare ourselves for the supramental truth. She says one important thing is thirst. If you have the thirst, wherever you are, whatever your outer life is, you are marked out. And the second, she says, do not cling. Do not cling to any habit. Do not cling to any idea. Do not cling to any opinion. And she says, the worst kind of ideas are ideas which belong to our moral notions, ascetic ideas. This is good. This is bad. This is right. This is wrong. Of course, this is a very vast doctrine. It's not meant for the Vedic Rishis knew this vastness can be disorienting. So therefore, as we see, they clothed it in double meaning. Those who were initiate could understand that when the Rishis speak of this vastness, they know that for action, we need to move from a lesser to a greater good. From We have to make a distinction between what is evil because it has to go out of creation which had, was good at one point of time and what is the good that is coming which will yet be replaced by yet greater good. So it was a very subtle truth. So therefore they clothed it in, in, in a double sense because for a non-initiate it can be very disorienting. That's why in India sannyasis were a breed apart. They were supposed to be away. You welcome sannyasi for a day in his house but if he lives for and year or two years, it can be very dangerous <laughs> because he may upset all the all the notions. You know, life is very comfortable, but he is living in a vast inner freedom. Shabindar used this word. His world is a world of vast inner freedom. 
he is not bound by our notions our ideas our smallnesses our bigotries and is very difficult to uh, live with that freedom so that's why the vedic rishis also spoke of two paths that we have to take successively and what were these two paths we those who are watching the mahabharata must have heard read about it or earlier uttarayan and dakshinayan you know bhishma says i will not shed my body in dakshinayan and uttarayan what is this dakshinayan and uttarayan they are also called at in the same thing in another context as pitriyan and devyan so pitriyan is the vehicle so these are the two paths the pitriyan or the dakshinayan is the path of the fathers and devyan or the uttarayan is the path of the gods so first we take the path of the fathers what is this path of the fathers this is the path of life of our ordinary physical vital mental existence and we have to lead it the way our fathers led it by dharma not fathers literally but the way of dharma and when we lead it this way then we get prepared for the next level where we are in that vastness as freedom we can't jump from our animal state to that we'll be confused so the next step is devyan or uttarayan so the inferior path is the dakshinayan so that's why you know uh, uh, duryodhan tells bhishma if you die now you will suffer for your sins actually that's not true what is said is that those who follow the path of dakshinayan they come back again into human life and this those who follow the uttarayan they don't come back they go to the solar light now what it means is that even dharma life of dharma binds us we come back and yet that life is the first step as a preparation for the next life and that life is the uttarayan so you know they 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 knew that human life moves these are the two stages of course there is a stage below of which many of us are part so we you know we don't talk about it that the vedic rishis were least really concerned about and that was the defect of that age incidentally but they were concerned about man's progress when the pro- the urge for progress becomes conscious then the vedic yoga begins similarly there are two other now out of these four guardians of the truth one is varuna and mitra and on the other hand there is bhag and aryaman they also go together and it's very interesting Ariman is the warrior and Bhag is the enjoyer what a paradox just like Varuna and Mitra Varuna goes into vastness vast sky beyond but Mitra will harmonize everything similarly Bhaga is the god of enjoyment he really shows us what is the right way to enjoy this universe enjoy life enjoy creation happiness which is a, the vedic rishis regarded happiness as a way valid goal of existence it was not something which they invalidated only they said to be truly happy you have to be vast you have to have the nature of a warrior which sheds the inferior enjoyment for a greater delight so that is how they proceeded so very often you say oh i have to shed this material life no it's not like that we make a choice we make a choice between an inferior mode of happiness or a greater mode of happiness and based on our choice we move up so ariman prepares the way for bhag when like a warrior we have shed cut off the bonds of darkness and ignorance when we have rejected the inferior mode of life to which we are bound 
then we are ready for the next level of enjoyment. This aspect of Ariman in Bhaga is brought out in a very uh, small verse, the very first verse of the Ishupanishad, whose power is so much that this verse alone can rescue Indian civilization out of its greatest darkness. And what is that verse? Isha Vasyam Idam Sarvam Yatkinch Jagat Yam Jagat. And from that it derives the next one. Tene Tyaktene Bhunjita Magrida Kasiswitanam. It's the same truth. By renouncing, thou shalt enjoy. So renunciation is not a painful process. This is another thing in the mind. Oh my God, I have to sacrifice this, I have to sacrifice that. It is natural. In fact, if we are feeling pain, it's not a sacrifice, not regarded as sacrifice. We are not to mortify ourselves. But it's something which naturally begins to drop off as the love of the divine grows. When we discover, when we have tasted a drop of it and we discover that there is nothing in this universe comparable to that. Every time after that taste, one goes back to the inferior mode, one feels, oh, what a letdown. What that beauty, that wonder, that glory, that closeness. And here I am again tasting mud and mire. So this is the Ariman. Ariman battles. He's a warrior like Kali. He prepares her nature. For what? For Bhaga, for divine enjoyment. When all these four gods have worked and tested us and thoroughly perfected the human vessel or as the Vedic Rishi said, baked the clay, then we are ready for entry into the highest Godhead whom they called as Surya Savitri. It was the light of truth that exists in the beyond, the transcendent. So first we see the individual, the fire, then we see the universal, vastness, harmony not only within us but with the whole creation and cosmos because we know the right law of everything. Divine enjoyment, a battling between the forces, participating in that great battle where we fight against ignorance and obscurity wherever it is found. That's how Shivindo defined Arya in this very first Somebody asked him why you have called your journal Arya. Who is the Arya? And he says Arya is not a geographical type. So beautifully. Arya is a psychological type of humanity that battles against darkness and obscurity and ignorance. Within and without. And whatever it conquers, it does not trample below his feet but ennobles it. That's the other aspect of the Aryan victory. Unlike the Asura, when he conquers something, he destroys it, decimates it. It crushes under the head. But Aryan will not do it. The true Arya, when it conquers something, it will ennoble it. Make it flower. Make it bloom. Make it something very beautiful. Its conquests are not for simply you know, self-expansion. But, but in the highest sense of the self. For the expansion of the divinity within this creation. And from that was derived in the ancient Vedic culture. Very interesting yagna. Ashwamedh yagna. Very interesting yagna actually. And in that yagna, people go on conquest. And somebody who performs Ashwamedh yagna is declared as a samrat. Now what is this Ashwamedh yagna? What kind of yagna is this where there is no fire and people are going with arrow killing each other? This was the inner sense. Because you see what way this Vedic culture tried to bring itself. Just as there are the four main Vedas, first three and then the fourth one, Athar Veda. There also came certain branches which came, you know, which were like applied Vedas, which are called as Upvedas. 
and among the upavedas we have ayurveda we also have shastra shastra veda shastra astra veda we have dhanurveda pushpa ayurveda from that knowledge there grew a whole branch so you know when in dhanurvidya who were the great you know even brahmastra powers of the cosmos could be materialized in creation and who could do it only somebody who was a great tapasvi this was the precondition and we see those stories where you know if you were not ready for instance arjuna why 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 was arjuna given these great weapons arjuna was known to be jitendriya he had mastered his senses he had mastered it sleep he had mastered it hunger so he had done all this tapasya and therefore he could attain these great so did karna also master many of these things then only one was a qualifier to these great weapons which one got through brahmavidya strangely that these were weapons one got through brahmavidya and then how does one know so a person who felt that he is the right person to govern not just a small kingdom but large expanse of bhumi in the way of dharma he performed this ashwamedh yagya ashwa is the force so he spreads his force through yagna for the fulfillment of dharma not for just his kingdom's expansion but the, for the fulfillment of dharma that is how you know yudhishthira performed the ashwa not every king could perform ashwamedh yagna he had to be truly a samrat in the real sense of the word that is master of his own self master of nature around so how this culture really grew around these great truths and he did not stop at anything short of that ultimate reality so now the question comes if such was the greatness of the culture what happened to it why did it vanish well it doesn't vanish to start with because as i said vedas are not a book vedas are written in the heart of creation it was the first dawn which gave us a promise as shubhendra says in savitri the very first canto almost that day the epiphany was disclosed it came to show us what is possible the vedic rishis were not evolutionary beings they were involutionary beings who came from higher planes who gave these truths to humanity and showed them that look this is your future go ahead but it was obviously the mass of humanity was still struggling it was not ready so one of the defects of the vedic age if you may use the word defect but a limitation rather a natural limitation because you can't take a leap straight away was that it was not this movement of the vedic wisdom was not meant for the masses so the 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 language of the vedas uh, was prone to an external interpretation though always it contained key and if you got that key you got it right otherwise it always appeared confusing mass of jumble mixture of nature worship with suddenly high sublime wisdom that is how people like max muller and others uh, even sayana interpreted them because they couldn't make sense why because they were not on the path it's very simple if we are on the path then we understand how beautifully uh, you know aryaman is working in us how indra is working in us and how the vedic gods appear how the rith expresses itself all this becomes so clear but if we are not on the path if we try a scholarly interpretation of the vedas then we are lost in a mass of unintelligible things what are the vedic rishis asking they are praying for cows and horses so <laughs> even donkeys they are you know all these are symbols in the vedas 
cow the word go means cow as well as light that's how we have gomati gopal um, golok you know everything to do with light gupta concealment of light but the other interpretation is they were asking for cows so that they can get milk so they were farmers well they were farmers you have been the said but farmers who tilled their inner land to bring out the seeds of the divine plenty so in that sense they were farmers ashwa force that's why in brihadaranya upanishad we have a whole image of the cosmic horse and that image can sometimes some of these images may appear very crude like you know in um, i think it is the chandogya where uh, no it is in the rigveda swamdev in one of the mandala he describes how the um, the immortal has seated himself within man in the form of a bull with two heads and four horns and three legs that's a very crude image but if you have the key you understand that the three legs are the um, threefold existence of man physical vital mental without the fourth it's incomplete it cannot stand for long and the four horns are the four aspects the four powers we just spoke about and the two heads are the purusha and prakriti the soul and nature and the whole image is it fits to every hymn once you have this key then you know the whole thing will fit systematically that mandala of vamdev contains a number of uh, rigs and suktas and it will fit everywhere but if that key is not there if one is lost in the very beginning oh what what kind of an image it's not even na- nature it's something like a uh, you know a perverted something weird imagination and one cannot make sense so that is why when vedas are approached with a scholarly mind they don't give their meaning and because the mass of humanity was not ready therefore the vedic civilization had to come down because humanity because nature always eventually whatever it be loves all her children as the mother says in savitri there are those lines not only the white gods but even the black gods are safe who have revolted and uh, gone away a mother's love waits with outstretched arms for a rebel sons and then says what the white gods missed they got it because they went away so eventually everybody and that's the reason why should be the say why the high trojan civilization had to be brought down why the great hastinapur had to collapse because that capacity was only for the few no nature doesn't allow it so we see towards the end of the vedic age an age comes when there is a more and more ritualistic interpretation of the vedas it becomes an outward mechanical worship the ceremonial fire replaces the inner fire the indra becomes a god who will fulfill our outer wishes rather than illumining our mentality and if he is not happy he will send his vajra and there will be rain and floods and torrents varuna will flood us the inner rivers the sevenfold rivers which emerge from sindhu the parent river and flow towards the twofold ocean of being look how beautiful this image is in the vedas that human existence moves between two oceans below there is an ocean of inconscience aprakritim salilam and above there is the ocean of the superconscious light and we move in between these two oceans shubhendra puts it so simply in this simple image of a tree a tree beside the sandy river beach oh holding its topmost branches to the skies like fingers to the heaven they cannot reach this is the soul of man his body and brain hungry for earth his heavenly flight attain 
So, you know, we are caught between these two oceans. On one side, the ocean of inconscience, which is constantly trying to swallow us, and the superconscious, which is constantly trying us. So, the sevenfold rivers, the rivers of inspiration, these powers which awaken as we progress along the path, Saraswati, who gives us, gives us the right inspiration, Mahi, the goddess of intuition, Bharati, illumination, Dakshina, the faculty of right discrimination about an action. So, all these things became external. And slowly, this external ritualistic interpretation led to the decline of the Vedic age. But it was a necessary eclipsing because nature wants the whole humanity to come. Then we come to the next stage. I'll try to quickly, you know, <laughs> because the Vedic age itself is so fascinating. So now what we find in the Upanishad is suddenly the rishis break free from all this outer mold. There is a very powerful intellectual expression of the truth. And that is so powerful, so direct, that you can't miss it. In the Vedas, it's, it can be missed. But in the Upanishads, that's why the Western scholars, they don't understand the Vedas, but they understand the Upanishads. They say, yes, Upanishadic verses are very powerful, deep, philosophical musing. They are not philosophical musing. Some people even say that the Upanishads were a revolt against the Vedas. But again and again, they quote the Vedas as authorities. Some of the Upanishadic writings are directly from the Vedas. In fact, the mantra is more or less like one of the mantra, Agni Ne Supatharai uh, from the Ishubanishad, the last mantra, is as if directly lifted bodily from the Rig Veda. So it was not a revolt against the Vedic lore, it was a revelation of the inner truth in mental terms, make it intellectually available, not in an analytical way. But again, the way was the intuitive mind for the masses of mankind. But which masses? Those who were intellectually now developed. They may not be psycho-spiritually open like the Vedic Rishis. But they were at least intellectually ready to receive these high truths. And they were given in that form. Like, you know, it describes the divine in this way. Tane jati, tane jati, tad dure, tad vantike, yadu, asya bahayat. Or when it describes what is this Atma, you know, the Upanishad, Katopanishad, how beautifully it's, it's very simple, direct, powerful. When Nachiketa asks Yama, tell me the threefold secret. So first is the secret of earthly life and that fire. And the second, the secret of cosmic existence. So first he talks about the, his first boon relates to his individual life. My father is angry with me, he should be appeased. Very, very simple. The second he asks, well, tell me the secret of um, the immort immortality. And then Yamari reveals to him the entire cosmic creation. And then he asks, some say that after that death, uh, man exists and some say he does not. So tell me the truth of this. So Yama says, well, even the gods don't know it. Don't ask such a question. I'll give you this. I'll give you that. So Yama, so Nachiketa says, no, I want this. And then he reveals this truth of what is that, uh, how the soul exists, how it goes beyond how it journeys and how to find it. It is seated in the heart that thou seekest. And repeatedly it says, Nachiketa, first thing you have to learn is Sriyascha Priyascha. Learn to distinguish between what is dear to you, pleasant to you and what is truly worth acquiring. And since you have that, you are the Adhikari. And what powerful verses. 
न तत्र सूर्यो भाती न चंद्र तारकम नेमा विद्युतो भांती कुतो यमग्नि आई मीन ऑल द वर्सेज ऑफ द उपनिषद आर वेरी पावरफुल वेरी डायरेक्ट सो दे आर इजी टू ग्रैस बाई एटलीस्ट एन ओपन इंटेलेक्चुअल मेंटेलिटी वट इज द स्टेट वेन वी कैन पास बियॉन्ड ग्रीफ इस इज हाउ ब्यूटिफुली दईश उपनिषद पुट्स इट वी ऑल वॉन्ट टू बी फ्री फ्रॉम ग्रीफ एंड सॉरो राइट so we go to psychiatrist we go here and there but what a solution in one half a sloka who doesn't have grief tatra komoha kashoka ekatvam anupashyata he who sees oneness everywhere whence has she help have grief whence shall he be deluded he who sees oneness everywhere we see division everywhere this is mine this is not mine this division but where everything belongs to the one and we dwell with that state of oneness we live with that state of oneness where we are simply trustees not possessors to put it in very practical term when there where there is grief nothing really belong to us so how can we lose anything and doesn't everything belong to us magrada kasisvidhanam why what is the need of acquiring anything now this is a state of consciousness in which the yogin can awaken and in the Uh, upanishads very direct though there are some 200 plus upanishads but 12 are the main principle upanishads and again their subject matter is brahman the eternal reality but it is very practical you know they teach a whole path and to go into it would be a whole but again we see that though the intellectual mind has grasped it and certain paths are there still man is not just the mind he is also has this life impulse his life which craves for 101 things so this craving of life says me too me too i too want that knowledge but i can't understand all this state of grief beyond into this vastness i am getting lost so again the upanishadic cage comes to decline and then starts a new movement in indian thought it is the age of the tantra and the puranas tantras also derive themselves from the vedas that's why they are called as agam shastras i mean they are endless in their origin and but what is the uniqueness of tantra and purana they connect with the life force in man that's the time of the great itihasas mahabharata and ramayana mahabharata and ramayana are nothing but vedas and once one understands the vedic lore one understands everything look at yagyaseni draupadi born out of the fire of sacrifice what is the sacrifice uh, drupad has performed he has performed sacrifice with this one single motive i want to destroy drona my arch enemy so drishtadumni is born but the gods take advantage of that they also give birth to draupadi now it's not that you know there was a fire and draupadi suddenly came out of the fire she is described as born into the youth what does it mean it's a developed soul which comes with a mission it's not that physically she is born and she is full fledged that's one way to show it but the real meaning is that she is a conscious being in fact it's also described that she was the incarnation anshavatar of kali she came to destroy an empire which had become belligerent arrogant the whole kshatriya vansh and therefore her will single will which opposes this entire array of people drunken with lust and power 
So when we look at the whole battle between the two sides, what else is this but Ariman, who is preparing the path? <coughs> so we see in, in Mahabharata, Ramayana and plenty of Puranic stories, I mean to go into it is endless and uh, maybe later we can have sessions because there are so many stories. Even now that serial comes on Mahadev, such fascinating stories. Or when we read Vishnu Puran, so many fascinating stories which are the same truth of the Vedas. But is brought in a way that connects to our life, life force. So we are shown gods who have relationships and you know who have children and progeny and who <coughs> so they show us how we can connect with them. How Shiva connects with his children. What kind of asceticism? For instance, you know, we have this image of ascetic who is uh, wearing a certain dress, whether Giru or white, who lives far away in the jungle, has a long beard. But look at Shiva, the Tapaswin. He is married, happily so. He has two children. And who is his companion? On one side, the gods. On the other side, the Vishdar, <coughs> Vasuki. Usko bhi gale mein what consciousness is this in which a tapasvi dwells? The whole world as if is his own. Nobody is his enemy. Nobody is his, you know, everybody is dear to him. So it gave to the life force in man a way to live which was in the light of the Vedas. We too can, like Shiva and Parvati, lead our life. That's why uh, many of the traditions that we have today in India have come from the Tantric tradition. They are not from the Vedas. For instance, temples. This came later on. They are derived from the Vedas, but temples are post-Tantra. When you have the Murti and then you have the Pran Pratishtha, you invoke the, invoke the goddess and then you have to, you know, all these deities... They were not just inner invocation, but also they could be invoked outside. So Tantra spoke of the process and the form of things. Vedas were happy with the essential knowledge of things. They didn't care after that. But in life, we need form and processes. We are not happy just with inner knowledge. I mean, this too vast and liberating knowledge, Isa, Vashya, Midam, Sarvam, it can be disorienting. So what do I do with my everyday life? What do I do with my wife, my children, my... Um, Though Yagnaval gives a very uh, beautiful way to understand it in the Upanishads, in the, it is there. So Yagnaval is married to Katyayani and Matri. So look at what, I mean, he is, the Ish Upanishad is attributed to him. And he gets married twice and at the end he abandons and goes, walks away. He says, no, I want to now live my life all by myself. So he splits his wealth equally to the two ladies and says, both of you have your equal share and I am going. So Matri says, well, tell me, I have observed you for long. I don't want this wealth, but I know you have an inner wealth. I want that. So he says, Maitri, everybody cannot be an adhikari for that. So you know, he tries to tell her that be happy. <laughs> Just <laughs> don't ask many questions now. <laughs> but then she asks, no, no, you give me that wealth. So she, he agrees. So he says, why does one after all love the wife and child and country and everything else? Now look the beauty of what Yagnwalk says. 
with what far-reaching consequences. He says, Maitreyi, one does not love the wife for the sake of the wife, but for the sake of the self. One does not love the child for the sake of the child, but for the sake of the self. One does not love the country for the sake of the country, but for the sake of the self. Now, this can be understood at two levels. As is the self, so is the nature of a love. When we live in the ego self, our love is small, bound by fears and expectations, and therefore it leads to disappointment, failures, frustrations. But there is another way of loving, and it is everything belongs to the one self, and we are only its trustees. So the love that flows to children, to wife, to husband, to everybody, is basically that love. We are simply reflections. We should be ideally reflections of that love reaching out to everybody. That is the deeper sense behind Acharya Devo Bhava, Pitra Devo Bhava, Matra Devo Bhava. The superficial sense is treat the Acharya as God. Modern generation won't accept it, isn't it? What do you mean? You are a God? Show me your powers. Or four hands at least. Pitra Devo Bhava. Father is God. No way. Matri Devo Bhava. Mother is God. Maybe a little bit. Not, you know, when she at least cooks nice things, she is God. But when she says, don't do this, she is definitely not a God. But there is another way to look at it. Acharya Devo Bhava. O teacher, be as the divine teaches us be some reflection of that divinity. How does the divine teach? With infinite patience and love. His teaching is very experiential, not a bookish teaching. So all great teachers know this. Pitra Devo Bhava. Father, be as the divine expresses his fatherhood towards creation. Matra Devo Bhava. Mothers, be as the divine mother is deals with the creation. So in the later tradition we see there is a connection with the life force. And this connection with the life force has sustained Indian culture. Look at the beauty of Indian culture. It didn't stop with simply. So at one level we see Vedas are the root and seed of things. But yet we see that they also remain, they have their limitations. So in India, every time a fresh impulse of spirituality comes because it's the land where spirituality must blossom. And it takes up those truths of the Vedas and gives it a fresh impetus at another level of human being. Vedas are very beautiful for those who are open in their psychic and spiritual life. But otherwise it's a jumble of words. But Upanishads comes to rescue. Then comes the Tantras and Puranas, connecting with the very life force in man. And of course the Gita, where it connects with everyday life, human action, takes up the problem of action in grim earnest. Again, it derives from the Vedas, but it gives to it a turn of expression which the human mind can connect with. It speaks of the same Chaturvanya, which is described in the Purushukta that uh, Brahmins emerge from his head and Kshatriyas from his arms and bhuja and uh, Vaishya from the udar and the thighs and Shudra from the feet. So Gita speaks about it, about that I have established the Chaturvanya. But it gives it a meaning which is more clearer and nearer. And then still something is remaining. 
this is not over and what is that re regaining the most remaining the most material existence the veda of the body because all these have dealt with first the spiritual existence of man the vedas the mental existence of man the upanishads the vital existence of man the puranas and the tantras what about the human body does it have a destiny is there a goal of it is it created just only as a pot for the soul to evolve through transmigration through 84 lakh yonis or does it have also a divine truth inbuilt within it and it must recover in its own terms the truths that the vedic rishis discovered in their soul the upanishadic seers in their mind and the sages and saints and yogis of tantra and the puranas is there a way the body can also discover this divine truth is there a way that the body can become vast in its consciousness shedding its physical ego like varuna fold is there a way that all the body functions can be brought to harmony with each other according to the cosmic law the rhythm of the body is there a way that within the body there is a mechanism we can discover that arimant can fight and battle against all that creates obscurities through movements in our consciousness movements of desire lust greed anger etc fear is there a way that the body can discover its own enjoyment the divine rasa of things that was the sense of shobindos that you know about taste shobindo is there a way that our very eyes and ears and taste buds touch can be transmuted so that they can become pure and perfect channels and vehicles of the consciousness of truth which is also a consciousness of delight so there we have entry into the age of shirbindo he recovers the vedas and their deep truth he recovers the upanishads and its deep truths he recovers and lays bare for man the deeper respects of tantra and purana but he carries this work to the next logical inevitable level and it is the perfection of the very body but obviously it is incomplete without the others if somebody believes that one can straight away the upanishads base themselves on the vedas they drew inspiration from the vedas and give it at the level of mind they didn't disconnect themselves from the vedas similarly the puranic and tantric traditions drew from the vedas and the upanishads and then gave it a form of expression and processes kundalini and all that so also shobindo draws from the veda upanishads puranas tantras for instance there are so many tantric processes in this yoga the opening of the centers but it's not that traditional way of kundalini the centers open up themselves by the mother's touch from above downwards so many things the vedic light shobindo in fact in one of his famous letters to nishtha Woodrow Wilson's daughter. He writes that that Shobindo's teaching starts from the ancient Vedic truth that there is one reality without a second behind this universe. It starts from there. So again, we cannot see that oh, his teaching is different and totally you know uh, disconnected from everything else and start working at the physical transformation. That will be like Virochana. who confuse the body for the physical self it's a paradox that to be a claimant for immortality 
we have to be free from the fear of death. <laughs> I mean, it's a paradox. So, Shurabindo comes as a logical culmination and fulfillment of what is glimpsed in the Vedas by the seers in their soul. What is expressed forcefully and beautifully and powerfully and aesthetically by the mind of the Rishi is a mind which had grown illumined by the touch of that light which comes from above. We are living in the rays of the sun, not the sun itself. What is expressed in manifold ways in the Puranic and Tantric tradition and what is yet to be done with the body. Shivindu comes to reveal the hidden Veda of the body but basing upon all these realizations, these truths have to be recovered and then they have to be applied at the level of our physical outer existence. And that is the age of Shirobindo. It has just begun or perhaps not even begun. It's just born. As the mother said, a new world is born, born, born. And she reminded us it's not a new conception of life. A new conception of life is there in the Upanishads. It's not just a new conception. It's not just coming out of ignorance towards knowledge. It is there in the Vedas. It's not just a transformation of our mentality, a reorientation of life, not around the ego but in, around the divine. It's there in the Puranas and the Tantras. It's not even certain capacities and powers which we find very powerfully in certain Tantric traditions. But it's the very transformation of life where matter itself which is the vehicle and there we come to this story with which we had started that the first we spoke about the first fire out of the three who is the first deity the fire so he is asked Usasti Chakrayan who is the second deity see we had stopped there so he says the second deity is Surya Savitri the second deity is that because after that individual realization, we must go to the cosmic and the transcendent. The sun is described as once cosmic as well as transcendent. And then who is the third deity? The last invocation, Ushasti Chakrayan says, is Annam, paradoxically. Matter, food, because all existence are based upon matter, upon earth. So if we don't Fulfill that. That's the last step of the sacrifice. And till that is done, life cannot be really fulfilled in the true Vedic way. So this is just a brief uh, overview. Um, it's a very detailed subject which we can explore if there are questions. Yes. This last part which you mentioned, um, this, this knowledge must have been available to Sri Shankaracharya at the time what matter? Why was that old? Or how was that so easily old? Again, what happened post just as post Vedantic, there was an age of ritualism. Uh, it was inevitable because the Vedic symbols. So similarly, Upanishadic writings. The problem is because they illumine the mind. Some people took it that they were basically intellectual formulas of truths. They knew there is truth in it, but. They applied the mind to it and not the real heart of the seeker. And they approached it with the mind. Now just as the Vedic truths vanish when we approach with the scholarly mind. In fact, any spiritual writing, 
that's one of my big problems with people who scholarly write on even Shurbindo's writings. Because they're not meant for that. They cannot be revealed. You will lose the meaning. And that's what happens to even Shurbindo's writings. So when Shankara applied mind, and he was a brilliant mind, one of the most brilliant mind after Buddha. Of course, I'm not talking of Shurbindo and Krishna. Different categories were really distinct. But otherwise, if there are two powerful minds which India has ever seen, is the Buddha and Shankara. And both of them, we see, are coming toward the end of the Upanishadic age. The illumination has come into the mind. Now what will happen? The mind will absorb it and try to figure out. Both Shankara and Buddha did that. So Buddha bases a lot on rationality and that's why people, you know, especially in the West, Buddha could never take roots in India, paradoxically. But he is very much, you know, people in the West can connect with him. Basically, what he gave the same Vedic lore. He never said that I have broken away from the Vedas. But later interpretation was that he was uh, revolted against the Vedic tradition. No, he revolted against the ritualistic interpretation of the Vedas, which was very correct. Because the Vedas had lost their meaning in mass of rituals. So Buddha said, no, none of this is required. There is an eightfold path of Dharma. And he says that, you know, the path of the Aryan, he uses that word which was based on that culture. So same thing with Shankara. Shankara used with his brilliant, powerful intellect, intellect, he tried to decipher the meaning of the Vedas. But the thing is, Shankaracharya was also a yogi in the making. He had his own experiences. And to those experiences, he could connect because the Vedic uh, Upanishadic experience speaks about a reality which is beyond. Ken Upanishad speaks about it. Yanman sana manute yena hurmanomatan tadeva brahmantam vidhi nedam yadidamupasate. Now, those experiences you could connect, but those experiences which are beyond where the, you know, the Vedic Rishis and the Upanishadic Rishis say that tasya bhanti, tasya vigyati sarvam, you know all by knowing that, those experiences you couldn't connect. Now, this was the deficiency of Shankaracharya's interpretation that, in fact, all interpretations that they are based on half experiences. That's why when Shubhinda was asked this question about, you know, Shankara's Mayavad, he says, well, my objection to Mayavad is very simple. I have experience of Maya. But what do I do when I went beyond it and discovered beyond the personal and the impersonal, the Purushottama? He says, I have to be true to that experience. So eventually the final verdict had to come by experience. That experience can be either through identification or by intuitive mentality or by faith. These are the three doors through which experience can pour in. Shurabindo identified so he could speak of that. But Shankaracharya remained. He could not really, uh, just don't worry about her. Just, just, just She is with mother's lap. Just don't worry. <laughs> so... You know, that is the problem with Shankaracharya's interpretation. And same thing happened with the Vedic. See, when they spoke about using the gods as a stairway to reach eventually the transcendent. So human mind tends to think, okay, transcendent is most important. So it discards all this. So that also came up. So it, by the very nature, mind's approach has this limitation. And though if we see the mass of Shankaracharya's writings toward the end, when he speaks about Sondari Lehri, the you know the ocean of delight, the wave of delight, he definitely Gatistvam, Gatistvam, Gatistva Bhavani, 
you know he definitely uh, saw the mother aspect which vedanta has hinted it speaks about the white mother uh, feeling the dark mother it's veda speaks about it but it is missed out in traditional vedanta upanishads are called as vedanta the, the essence of vedic lore so shankaracharya came from that yet something of that truth about the divine mother about the shakti aspect that shankaracharya did glimpse later but probably he could never reconcile because it's only when you get that that you get the rahasya of prakriti that's why in in shiv puran there is a very interesting whole section on sati rahasya one of the devotees of shiva is uh, who has meditated for thousands of years and when he comes out he you know he had a glimpse of shiva he was living with him in kalash and then he goes into realizing the inner shiva when he comes out he is completely disoriented to see shiva as a married person and when he comes to know he is not married once but twice he shocked he says you can't be shiva how can shiva be like this it's a very beautiful story and then just for one bhakta shiva turns the cycle of creation back by thousands of years as the story goes and reveals to him the sati rahasya which is about the union of purusha and prakriti now these were truths which shankaracharya could never get and uh, prakriti was only for him you know ended up being a challna and shubindu says so powerfully he says you cannot slay maya because maya is what it is a power of the lord that's why sri krishna himself says what is maya maya duratya it is my own maya how can you slay something which is power of the lord himself he can say he says but you can slay moha moha you can slay you cannot slay maya but shankaracharya at that tradition tried to do something which its nature is not possible so this was the limitations of shankaracharya i mean a great intellect and he had his own contributions in his own age but to regard him as the ultimate truth it would be incorrect and we see that happening now you see what's happening in india this fight over uh, i mean how far it is going away from the real sanatan dharma that suddenly there is a debate raging over whether sai baba was a hindu or not a hindu or muslim and should be worshiped not worshiped ganges god knows everything under creation has come but it's a good debate because you know everything that belongs to the religious interpretation ritualistic interpretation will always have a fixed life and vanish after that its only task is to preserve the truth in a mold of temporal mentality when the mentality advances that interpretation has to be broken so whatever his truths have been they are now not relevant because we cannot connect with that you kind of pick my curiosity you did say that the essence is revealed through the physical according to yeah could you give, tell me how that is that yeah um this actually in great detail mother has described it in the yoga of the body in great detail how all the experiences that she had in the beginning of the centuries uh, the experiences of the great vedic uh, truths she had of the upanishadic truths and she sp- speaks about them in her earlier conversations she said i had to lock all of them up send my mind and vital away so that the body can now have the same experiences it's very amazing how does the body experience dissolution of the ego because it'll vanish and it's a necessity if one has to live the supramental life 
mother says is one of the important elements there is a very interesting story which connects directly to the vedic and the puranic traditions that when all these gods used to come to her in during meditation and at one point she asked them that are you willing to participate in this new creation so they hemmed and hawed and <laughs> of course sri krishna says i'll incarnate and he alone of all the gods accepted to incarnate in the physical body and that was we know 1926 in shubhendu's body but she was said i'll come uh, i'll take a body only when the transformation is complete but tell me what can i do for this i can help so mother said dissolve the physical ego so shiva because he see that's why he is the lord of transformation because he destroys he is the great destroyer mahakal what did he destroy everything that is an obstacle to the spiritual path that is why also he is the moksha dai that's why he is he is the holder of the ganges that's why his uh, home is samshan you know all this symbolic so shiva began to destroy the physical ego and the mother goes and tells you know i have a funny feeling all my cells are dilating and <laughs> expanding and as if they are going far away shurbindo heard and looked at her and said not yet the time has not yet come and mother says one word of him and everything came back again shurbindo talks about this dissolution of the physical ego in his records of yoga even experiencing ananda at the most physical level kaman ananda and mithun ananda is actually that the ananda of the highest in the very matter union of spirit and matter it is hinted in the puranas you know in the tapasya of parvati it is hinted that it's a ascent of consciousness but here all the experiences of bliss of wisdom of love of truth all this must be experienced now in the very body in the body cells which would mean they would be in time to come when this you know this age has just started when the yoga of the body is perfected there would be no more error and therefore no more disease because there would be the true rith right now we have to connect with this world through matter uh, through mind i must eat this i shouldn't eat that it is a uh, very you know but when you when we turn to the veda uh, what is that reality it says it is this and that it is at once this and that so when this body has finally uh, discovered its own veda not just in mother and shubhendu's body but that truth is replicated in many bodies then spontaneously it will be automatically immune from diseases because aryaman within us will automatically cut away all that is dark obscure ignorant mitra will automatically harmonize all the various functioning from the cerebral function to the feet to all the organs um, varuna will reveal the law of truth will free the body from all that is small and narrow see lot of for instance medically we say diseases are either because of congestion of organs or because of depletion now again this because the life force is moving along very cramped paths why because our motives are small or you know everything is small but when varuna comes and clears all these obstacles then the human body will itself recover immortality and recover the truth of its being it's described in great detail in the mothers Uh, later conversations particularly in the agenda but as i said it has to be read with a lot of uh, inner maturity uh, in fact all spiritual teachings for instance one place he says uh, you know going beyond good and evil uh, into a consciousness where both are united but both lose their character uh, 
uh, as they are experienced in human life and become something else. Now, obviously, for a human consciousness, it can be very disorienting. But that is the truth. So, is that, is that therefore experiential rather than anything else? It's both. First, everything has to be grasped by the mind. Then the will must accept it as a possibility. Then the experience. Ultimate truth is always experiential. Even the Vedic truths are experiential. But obviously, since we are mental beings, the mind must grasp that it's possible. The second step is the will must accept it. Okay, it's possible, but maybe I would aspire for it. And then the third is the experience. But yes, the experience is the last thing. Before it defies uh, any logic or analysis. Um, it should rather be said it has its own logic, but a divine logic. Because logic basically, if we look at logic, logic picks up data from the surface. And according to that, we determine the relation of things. Logic is about that, about relation of things. And based on that, we speak of cause and effect. But as that data changes, uh, we have fresh logic. You know, as they say, the new evidence comes in. So it has its own logic because uh, um, the difference between human logic and the divine logic is that human logic is uh, only having a little data. Say, for instance, if I <coughs> take food, and if I fall ill, so what do people normally say? Oh, khana khaliya tha, bimar ho gaya. Very logical. But many times we take the same food and don't fall ill. So, you know, we have no logic for it. Now, that's because it's not only the food, but also other things. I may be tired that day. My immune system may be at a low ebb. I may be depressed going through. I may not have a will to live. So many now, you see, now as the data multiplies, the logic begins to change. Now to that a further logic, what the soul wants to experience, how it wants to take a leap. So when mother was asked about certain people like for instance some deaths in the, you know, people who died and she says that how the soul chose to go and that choice has to be respected. I mean it's amazing. Now that data is obviously not with us. So we may say it is illogical. But to a divine vision it is perfectly logical. So there is a logic, no doubt. Because human logic is a all human faculties are, uh, because we are built at one level as a shadow image of the divine, are representative or reflective of a divine functioning. For instance, imagination is a formative power. What is it a representative of? Of Maya. Now, imagination defies logic and yet by imagination we create realities. So, if we imagine a ghost, our body doesn't say, oh, it's an imagination. We are afraid. So, that's why, you know, when children watch Twilight and all these serials, they have the same disastrous effects as actually encountering a ghost because eventually your body doesn't register that oh it's a it's not a ghost real ghost that's why you know when people watch you know pornographic films and all this is the same harmful effect it saps away the power of love and you know only reduces it to lust it doesn't matter whether actually one you know does these things or not by the mere fact of the mind indulging in imagination we create our reality now this is a fact so, the same way, there is something corresponding to human logic and that is a divine logic. But that is a much wider scope and, uh, you know, uh, ambit of data available to it. It's Trikal Darshi. Again, that we find in many of these stories that, you know, why things happen and um, in stories of Krishna and um, Rama as the folklore goes, we see that logic which goes even beyond one life, logic that extends through many lives. I mean, somebody who came to Shirobindo, um, I think Srinivas uh, Ayer's brother, and Shirobindo just told him 
so you were uh, the great general in um, shivaji's time so he was he, he goes back and tells his brother what is this uh, uh, talking about past life and all i don't believe in all this stuff so he asked shivabindu shivabindu said oh is it tell him after 20 years he will leave his body at the same place where the general had died how did he leave actually that general died in a prison and that prison was in delhi this man had a heart attack now a hospital is there with the same name and he goes there and he then he is reminded <laughs> shivabindu spoke about it now you see there is a different logic which operates now the divine has all these threats and that's what shivabindu described beautifully in savitri the fire inside that knows the secret of all our births past and future so therefore it sees the logic behind every event why i am going through pain why i am going through apparent suffering otherwise to a human logic the divine action appeared totally capricious and illogical why you know divine's favorite draupadi who is whom shri krishna addresses as sakhi must undergo such abject humiliation why should abhimanyu die in the prime of his youth such a valiant warrior such a illustrious child uh, nephew of krishna and son of arjuna and yet his seed will become the future of uh, you know aryavarta i mean it's it defies human understanding what is abhimanyu sacrifice but to a divine vision they are logical because it's another kind of logic which operates which is not just the logic of the form but the logic of the consciousness this beautifully uh, another of the question that gargi asked yagnaval tell me what is that which is beyond the sky and below the earth and between the sky and the earth so then of course yagnaval says it is sutratma the subtle self which ties all things yeah that's it sutratma so it's it this which ties all these things in a single thread so it is the one which so that is a different logic so it is logical but of a different order it defies human logic definitely yeah it kind of looks like you know the maya of shankara i mean about which you talked about yeah except that maya not with a negative connotation in the sense that uh, maya it is a fashioner of forms and its fashions forms for play with a certain purpose and that's why this maya itself has two ways of expressing itself one is the avidyami maya where it completely identifies with the ignorant nature and appears ignorant feigns ignorance as shobindu would put it but behind this avidyamai is the vidyamai maya so in nature everywhere we will see with forms play of differentiation on the surface and unity consciousness behind and that's why the ishupanishad declares vidyan cha vidyan cha yast dvedo bhyamsa he who holds vidya and avidya together who has the consciousness of vidya and yet deals with avidya that means the world of multiplicity so of course the truth of the maya as you rightly say except that maya in later years post shankara began to you know have a very negative connotation and that was unfair it was unfair for creation unfair for the divine unfair for manifestation unfair for the human soul struggling upon you know earth and the greatest paradox was all the great mayavadins going all over the world to say that life is maya well if it is maya then who is going where and to awaken whom then one should actually just really give up life i mean 
one should rather follow the path of uh, the great tirthankar mahavira at least he was true to whatever he believed in that yes it is an illusion so he said well then shed food everything and eventually he shed the very body now there is a greatness in that that's why he is mahavir you know he is the he is the man who vardhaman who becomes vast by truly following a heroic path so if we really believe maya then that is the path but if we take it that it is the maya of the lord with a purpose in creation because that path leaves a big question mark on how this came into existence why creation at all why after at the end of suffering we talk about merger back into that state it leaves that big question mark who created this illusion and what for if divine created it then he must be really a cruel person to create an illusion and then at the end of it say okay the show is over it was a nightmare <laughs> get back i mean <laughs> who would subject us to nightmare so shobindo reveals the deeper meaning even the gita reveals that's why i said the gita speaks about his own maya it is his maya so maya is something not negative but maya reveals a process of the divine in dealing with this manifest creation where it creates the illusion of multiplicity for a certain purpose yeah this uh, god is everywhere you say logically it can be easily proved where contains here here even there also contains here so he is everywhere and it also contains here her so he is present everywhere as the divine mother <laughs> as the power of creatrix in creation <laughs> yeah i mean that's yeah there are so many beautiful ways of expressing it yeah. second thing you said about vedas the vedas is knowledge so can it be that knowledge is nothing but a truth well in its original sense in its original sense but unfortunately like the word maya knowledge has now come to mean scholastic knowledge informational knowledge Uh, all kinds of knowledge which in the original sense is not knowledge but agyan that's why when they speak about gyana they speak about vigyan they speak about sangyan and they speak about agyan so from the original sense uh, you know sanskrit you can apply these terms so according to gita for instance and even according to one of the upanishads all the knowledge about the worldly things alone is agyan now you know it's something which uh, people would um, fight to the nail what do you mean it has such a power i switch on and the plane fight so you know agyan is a process of knowledge but a limited knowledge so agyan is not absence of knowledge it is in limited knowledge so you know from agyan one goes to the essential knowledge the gyana and then from gyana one like the gita says gyan vigyan how that one knowledge truth rather has you know manifested and expressed itself in millions of forms that becomes vigyan in the original sense so that's how the whole search for knowledge proceeds so it is truth but only thing is um, a truth which is at once one and multiple a truth which is not just a harsh bare cut off transcendent reality but a truth which at once is in harmony with the cosmos it has created and which also dwells in the individual so we'll need to define that truth otherwise it leaves a big gap in understanding purely from a metaphysical point of view so the truth itself it is true up to nth degree th is nth degree yeah we can say it is that, infinite that is from zero to infinity that's why the word used is infinite which incidentally is one of those things which defies logic infinity right. itself 
is uh, something that defies logic. I mean, nobody has really experienced infinity. In Vedar and Kupanishad, there was one question was asked that, what is that holds the body? And Yadkiwari said it's a voice. Which voice is talking Speaking about the force of life, which in human being or in material world is manifested by breath. In human beings, it is the swasa. So, there is an interconnectedness. For instance, heart in human beings is the center of this pulsation of life. And that's why one of the secrets of longevity is to simply control the heartbeats. It is so interesting. <laughs> and the breath. Because, you know, it all derives from that. So, it is the power. But life, force of life is not just the breath. There is life in the stars. There is life of galaxies. There is life of the cosmos. You know, scientists talk about it. The universe breathes. It's still breathing, expanding. And it will contract, which will be like an expiration. So, there is life even in matter. But then, <clears throat> in human beings, this life expresses itself through certain material processes. So, that's, so, life, but not the life as we understand. Similarly, these five principles which are there in the Vedas, they correspond to the five levels for me. So, earth, the principle of matter. Next comes Jalam, the, you know, the immediate vital layer which makes matter flow, makes it grow, you know, grow, pass. Then fire, which is the central moving principle which binds the skies and the earth together. And then you have the Vayu, the manifoldedness, expression of thought as it expands. And then you have the space which is the spiritual element. So all these things come together and weave creation. So again, these are subtle elements. But they also express itself in physical level. So in everything, in matter there is a fire, Jadagni. In matter there is space, 99.9% .9 is space, empty space. In matter there is also the principle of matter. I mean, in earth element is obviously there. In matter there is the power of attraction and repulsion, which is the Jala element which makes the electrons move around. So in matter also everything is there. In matter there is this constant, that's why this morning we were talking about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which is because of the element of Vayu. There is a thought in matter. That's why there are different forms of the periodic table. You know, there are different elements created by the same electron or by, by basically the essential units are the same. But in manifold ways, it expresses itself in different idea forms, like the same genes, DNA, expresses itself in the quality of a tiger or in the swiftness of a deer, in the strength of a lion. It also expresses in the thoughtful man. So what is this but the, uh, you know, the quality of Vayu which manifests itself in many ways. So all these elements are present in every aspect of creation. It is the condensation of the spirit. It becomes, because originally there is nothing else but spirit. So for its own manifestation, because it has no other substance, but out of itself, like in, in one of the Puranic stories, Ganesha is created out of Parvati's washings. So matter by its own self-condensation, self-concealment, becomes a spirit by its own self-concealment, condensation or concentration becomes matter and that is why matter can change into spirit. That's why there is a possibility of divine life in matter. 
Otherwise, if they are forever dual realities disconnected from each other, there would be no way to connect them. There is one reality and that reality becomes matter, that reality becomes the ethereal world, that reality becomes the many gods. That's why when Yagnavalki is asked this another question, how many gods are there? So he says, well, 33 crores or if you may say 3000 or maybe 300 or perhaps 3 or 1 and a half or 1. That's how Yagnavalki answers. So you see the threefold creation that at each level this one expresses himself in many ways and mainly at the level of mind, life and matter. So there is a threefold, threefold creation above, Sat, Chit, Ananda, threefold creation below and each of these gods further ramifies, becomes, you know, till you can eventually take it to the pyramid where one and a half, one and a half is the divine and his Shakti, Shakti has come out of himself, is always united with him. She is always rooted in him and she has gone into the creation simultaneously. So it is half. Look at the beauty of the language. Divine mathematics. She is one and a half. It doesn't say two because two means they are two distinct. One foot of the Shakti in the Rig Vedas is described as a swan which has one foot on the ground, earth and the other foot in the sky. So Shakti is always rooted in the divine, in so-called what we call as him in that being but something of her has gone into creation so therefore one and a half and then beyond one and a half one but eventually you can resolve it to one from which everything has come out so in fact it this has a great relevance even to our evolutionary advance because all of us advance along one of the lines of the three trinities which are the original three powers in creation. In Puranas, they were known as the Shiva, Brahma and Vishnu. So this is how the Vedic uh, wisdom, uh, Vedic cosmogony works. Yeah. I don't know, you mentioned the word Rit many times today. Yeah. I don't think I totally understand what it means. So, you know, when we use the word vastness, Varuna and Mitra, they are together. So Varuna is vastness. Now the problem is vastness is uh, you know, mother describes it beautifully, let's say perfection. Now, if you have two elements, you can arrange them on a table. Now, if you have three elements, now there is a little bit problem, but you can arrange them. Now, imagine that your table is filled with papers. <laughs> it becomes a clutter. But yet you have to arrange it. Now, what is the way to arrange it? Take, for instance, a small hut where there is a vessel and a cot and maybe a chula. So you have a place for everything. Imagine a place where there are many many things. How do you arrange it? And there are two ways of arranging. One where everything will be discordant. You know that happens. But another way is where everything will give a sense of harmony. Now this sense of harmony is something innate. You, we can intellectualize it but you know like when you arrange a room when you say, well, this is looking nice here, use the word, it's looking nice. Now, if you logically analyze, somebody will say, no, 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 you should keep it here. There were so many ways of arranging and different human beings will come up with their own logic. But Rith is that original divine arrangement or ordainment of things. That's why the word is also, it's the law of truth. How does the truth arrange things in time and space? And if you live according to that, then life is beautiful, harmonious. When we don't live according to that, for instance, uh, 
एज एन इगोइस्टिक पर्सन वन मे फील लाइफ इज मेंट ओनली फॉर माई प्लेजर एंड एंजॉयमेंट अनफॉर्चुनेटली देर आर ऑल्सो सम फिलोसफीज वी टॉक अबाउट इट सो वट आई डू आई डेविएट फ्रॉम रिथ इन रिथ एवरीथिंग हैज इट्स प्लेस including what we call today's evil and you know what is evil according to rits understanding that which is not in its place so we arrange things according to a human logic or a human law but in rith there is a, another way of dealing with things so today only you know we are watching this episode in mahadev where this girl who has come out of mahadev mansa she she you know out of anger kills with her poison she belongs to nagalok she has come out of that poison which is in shiva's throat vasuki's sister and very interestingly what is the real mission to absorb poison just the opposite but she kills beings with the poison but when she converts when she realizes a mistake then she becomes a goddess who sucks the poison out now you see the same person according to the law of truth her function was to take away the poison of creation into herself and therefore be like a goddess but what she does is just the opposite because of the egoistic sense i am powerful i can kill people she does just the very opposite and which is not in accordance with rith so what is the prashit that is given by shiva to her normally you know if somebody does these acts tumne ye sab kiya i'll punish you she was said no now i am giving you the power to absorb back the poison so she is given the prashit that because you have killed some for lives to come for a great eon of time you will absorb everybody poison and relieve them of their pain and suffering now look this is how rith operates because rith is also like law from the divine point of view that is justice so you see divine justice is one with compassion so rith is essentially the right arrangement of things according to a divine vision and divine law and because we don't follow that our life becomes a very messy thing and it's very difficult to discover it so long as we live in the sense of the ego and desire because it always clouds the true law of things rith that's why because krishna knows the rith which is one with dharma and vastness he asked arjuna to destroy his own relatives now you know in the human law you say oh this is not done but krishna knows that in the law of truth this has to be so this is the sense of rith and arjuna would do a greater evil by not participating in that massacre than by participating in it so you know that's how rith rith is the right arrangement of things in time and space according to a divine vision or a divine law of things because truth is one and vast but that leaves us nowhere there is also multiplicity so i you know one can get lost so what is my relation with this or that so i may say shivoham shivoham sachidanandam name panchvayu name nam mera mata hai pita hai but you know what do i do with this world of manifold relation so this is a divine arrangement of things that we have to discover that is rith so vedik rishi is wanted to discover it in ishupanishad is described very interestingly yagnaval prays to the and that can, that is the supramental law so that's why shubhendra emphasizes on that even the lower mind you don't discover rith so uh, yagnaval prays hiranmayena patrena satyasya pihitam mukham 
तत्वम पूषण्य पावरनु सत्य धर्माय दृष्ट है आई वॉन्ट टू यू नो धर्मा हियर मीन्स दैट वॉट इज दैट लॉ ऑफ ट्रूथ आई वॉन्ट टू सी दैट सत्य धर्माय दृष्ट है सो इट इज द धर्मा अकॉर्डिंग टू द विजन ऑफ ट्रूथ नॉट धर्मा अकॉर्डिंग टू अवर मेंटल कंसेप्शन ऑफ वॉट इज राइट एंड रॉन्ग बट अकॉर्डिंग टू अ डीपर विजन ऑफ थिंग्स that's why the actions of many of these vedic rishis is so difficult to understand because they lived in a consciousness which was vast and impregnated with the law of truth and human consciousness gets baffled when we read these stories they are fascinating and charming but also sometimes mind boggling what is the subject matter for tomorrow we'll take on from where we are living the age of shirbindo we talk at great length about that or we can also have many more questions we will see what rit what rit reveals to us yes please you talk about nan vidna but in one of the book of ramkrishna i read nan vidna energy vidna and vidna that is vishishta vidna so can you tell something about Uh, well in what context because i have read shri ramakrishna but some of this um, has not struck me i have read his gospel his works and swami vivekananda's works but if i have to intuitively arrive at you know what he would have meant so uh, it would mean that there is um, you know normally when we use the word gyan vigyan so the essential truth as applied to the universal becoming that's how normally gyan vigyan is used but vivigyan would means the transcendent self in that sense so that uh, truth which upholds the transcendent or the way the transcendent uh, weaves himself into the creation that's what would mean according to an intuitive sense of things but if i get the passage i'll know it what exactly he would have meant but i feel that's how he must have meant so can you tell me the one thing more huh uh, patanjali yoga darshan huh? and arvind philosophy Uh, yes so uh, as we see that yes that's very, very valid so as we see that at the end of every age i am connecting to the subject there was a tendency to uh, codify things into uh, like you know the gods assumed fixed functions the inner process which was very wide and plastic assumed very rigid external rituals so also at the end of the upanishadic age uh, in upanishads the paths are not fixed the process is not fixed that you know you should do this that the rishi will give a very general terms um, you know uh, the path of the truth the path of the light um, brahmacharya nitya follow the law brahmacharya rishyo yapt kama conquest of desire they will speak in very general terms but they will not tell exactly how to do it because uh, they allow that freedom to the human consciousness to evolve once it has the aspiration for truth it will find the way whereas later on these paths became very fixed and rigid therefore you know we started karma yoga gyan yoga bhakti yoga and raj yoga so the paths also became highly specialized and shobindo says at the beginning in the synthesis it has great disadvantages because it takes away the freedom and flexibility and also the subtlety of the actual yoga that's why you know when people often look for oh in shobindo's yoga is there an easy to do three step spirituality well it's not and thankfully it is not because it you know only somebody who is not walk the path 
will think about it this way. Like, well, Shubhendra says, uh, this is what you must do. Keep your mind quiet, reject the thoughts and then, you know, invoke the mother. Very fine. Whole lifetime will be spent in doing it. So, you know, they, knowing the difficulties of the human journey and the many-sidedness and the complexity, these great rishis of whom Shurabindu, of course, uh, at one level is part of that great uh, inheritance, uh, would not uh, give this. But Patanjali, post Upanishadic age, wanted to codify things so that human intellect can grasp it. Because as we have seen, Upanishads was about it. So it takes out that and particularly the system of Rajyo. So he started, okay, first practice Yama, Niyamas, and for each one he gave some basic principles, etc., etc. Then he talks about stabilizing the physical matter, then stabilizing the nervous system through asana and pranayama, then stabilizing the mind through dhyana and dharana. And eventually his goal is samadhi, to merge into the absolute. To start with the very goal in Shurabindra's yoga is different. It's not a merger, it's not a samadhi in the way Patanjali describes it, but Samadhi in the way Sri Krishna describes it. Because this question is asked to Sri Krishna. What is Samadhi? And Sri Krishna describes in very interesting terms. You could be engaged in battle in a state of Samadhi. So it's a state of consciousness. Not a certain intensity in which you are lost in the absolute. Not a state of oblivion. But in Patanjali, it is Samadhi is a state of withdrawal from the world. And so he prepares the sadhak step by step. Because that's how Patanjali understood the lore of the Upanishads. Because they point towards an absolute. So there was a tendency in the human mind to create a trenchant distinction between that and this. Whereas when uh, you ask the Upanishadic Rishis, what is that? He'll say, as I said, he will say it is here and there, as we were saying. So you know, one is confused. How can it be here and there at the same time? Because human mind loves to have uh, contrast and contradictions. So Patanjali's goal is very different. It's for an individual soul's release from the bonds of birth and death. The Upanishads and the Vedas never really kept that as a goal. That was a later interpretation of the... They were in quest of immortality, which is a very different thing. But later on, immortality meant not entering into the human body at all. But immortality is a consciousness. And one can be in a consciousness of, of immortality, even though the body is mortal. One is... In that state where one knows, one is conscious even after death. So this is where Patanjali uh, is a very special and limited application, um, not even an application, but uh, a codification of a very vast and complex yoga. So, but it, you know, it has its advantages because for the human mind, it appeals, okay, I have to do these things. But as I said, just practicing one of the yamas or niyamas is not an easy task. Because human nature is so complex. Even if one wants to, uh, you know, it's so beautifully shown in the Upanishad, like if one wants to practice truth. So if a terrorist come looking for a person who is hidden in our house, seeking shelter, should I speak truth or should I not speak the truth? Now here my truth is coming at variance with justice and compassion. How do I harmonize all these? So Patanjali doesn't deal with all this complexity because he's not concerned with the cosmic movement at all. His task is very limited and individual. Whereas Shubhindo's Yoga, in the line of the great Vedas, it's not just an application of the great truths discovered by the Veda to an individual, but to the whole of human race and to the earth, to the very matter itself. So the goal is very, very different. So the process is very different. So there are no Yama Niyama in Shubhindo's Yoga. 
but the emergence of the psyche. Mental rules always create rigidity. Uh, very beautifully that again that episode. You know, Bhishma asked this uh, interesting question to Ganges. Uh, Ma, tumhara santanu mein, tum to pavitra karti ho sabko. You make everything pure. Why is it that I became an instrument for so much evil in this world? So much a dharma, unwittingly. <coughs> then she says, you know, because you understood dharma in a very external way and you stuck to it rigidly. So that's what yama and yama are pure mental rules. And mental rules create so much rigidity in the consciousness that paradoxically that rigidity prevents us from moving towards the divine. That's why when we read Shurabindo's list of rejections, it speaks even about rejection of minds, ideas, thoughts, insistence. Divine should be like this and not like this and this is divine, that is not divine. She says that time comes very difficult to say what is divine and what is not divine. But you have to yet use that distinction for practical application in real life. But yet at one level it is impossible to say because the mind enters into that state of all is the divine. So, but Patanjali doesn't deal with this issue because his uh, idea is withdrawal from life. But if you follow really that path, which is a very narrow and rugged path, basically it's a form of Raj Yoga. Some element of Bhakti is there when he talks about, uh, you know, surrender to the God and some aspects of Jnana are there. But his main um, goal is very different. And so the process. In Shubhindo's Yoga, there is no Yama and Yama, but psychic emergence which should show us. And opening of the higher faculties like Dakshina, she should show us what is to be done and what is not to be done, not according to mental conceptions of right and wrong, but according to the Rith, the higher law of things. So you, you just talked about one half God and one, one and half God and one God. Uh, isn't Vedanta about only God or one God? Uh, is it? Only God, there is only God, then only, there is only one God. So yeah. Everything is nothing but God. Yes. Uh, but there is one God. And yes. So the reason why I'm asking you this is one of the talks about mother, with mother I was reading and mother questioned, somebody was talking about Sampurna Avatara and she questioned how Sampurna Avatara is possible. So is that in that regard that the, everything cannot become condensed into one being? Uh, pervading through all of Yeah, but the other side, complementary side is that the one is also multiple at the same time. So that's where these 33 crore devtas come in. But it's true that one need not go through that process. So mother's talks are in that context that, you know, the path of the Vedas goes through all the various gods. But it's not necessary because we contain the one, the supreme within ourselves. And we can take a direct route. This is one of the difference between the Vedic yogas and the yoga of the mother and Shubindu. In fact, I was thinking of highlighting this tomorrow, certain other aspects which are, which are where they have changed the very or uh, rather revolutionize the very way of yoga. But restricted to the question, basically this one only is also infinite. So by its very nature, it expresses itself in infinite ways. So how does he express? That's where he brings out of himself the power and the knowledge. And that is the half part. And it's not half in a lesser sense. It's half in the sense that it's rooted in the one but moves towards infinity. Ekam satyam vipra bahuda vadanti or you know that ekam uh, eko vashi sarabhuta antaratma 
yet it goes into different worlds in that sense it is one and one and a half and that half part is the one which goes into this creation and yet one leg remains rooted firmly in the foundation of the one uh, in yush upanishad it is described as matrishwan in that the waters of the being are held together and why this is important this is practical implication the practical implication is because one part of creation is always rooted through its power into the consciousness of the one therefore creation can climb back to the one if it was two then it won't be so it is one only and if we have nothing to do with creation we can only use the word one but if you give me the exact sentence of you know what mother has said then i'll immediately say in what context she has said because many things she has said in a certain context as i said she says you one need not go through these gods there is a certain context to that okay so we'll close here yeah.